So today we come to Genesis chapter 44 in our study of the book of Genesis, of course. And you can go ahead and open your Bibles up there. Genesis 44. Of course, in recent weeks we've been studying about Joseph and uh, we've come to the point here in the story where all the brothers of Joseph have now been in his presence in Egypt and have all bowed before him in the fulfillment of one of his dreams. And last week, as we studied chapter 43, we saw where they had all sat down and had a meal together. But Joseph, up until this point, still has not revealed to his brothers who he really is. This morning in chapter 44, we'll see where the brothers are about to get back on the road again and go back to their father with the food and the supplies that they had come to Egypt to get. And we'll see that Joseph, once again, is going to supply them with all the things they need in abundance. But in verse 1 here of chapter 44, it says of Joseph that he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. So now we see here that Joseph has some kind of a plan up his sleeve. Keep in mind that God has given Joseph great wisdom in the land of Egypt. We've studied the story of Joseph thus far. We know how he got there and what happened to him while he was there, but we also have seen that God has given him great wisdom there. Uh, the, Lord of, the Lord God has been working mightily in and through the life of Joseph now for somewhere around 24 years here in Egypt. Also keep in mind that um, all we are reading about in this story and in the whole book of Genesis for that matter has great impact on a people group. Uh, a people group that will be the chosen people of God, a people group that will eventually become a nation, a nation that will ultimately be scattered and then ultimately brought back again. So God's hand is upon all of this that we're reading. And here we see that Joseph is, is about to make it so that this family, his family, is not going to go away from his presence for good. We're, you'll see as we go along what's taking place here, but he's really, he really doesn't want them this to be the last time he sees them. They will be back again, though they do not yet know it. And uh, verse 3 says, As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks? He's speaking of the cup, right? That he planted, right? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which in, he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in doing so or in so doing. So he overtook them and spoke to them these same words. Okay, so 
If you fill in the blanks here, Joseph had planted this cup, his special silver cup, in the sack of one of the men, one of these brothers, right? And this cup is no ordinary cup for Joseph. It has some special meaning to him. Now, divination is defined as the practice of seeking knowledge of the future or of the unknown through supernatural means. Okay, so that's what divination is. But you see, what I automatically think of here is the fact that when Joseph interpreted the dreams of the butler and the baker back in chapter 40, he foretold their future, if you remember, with those interpretations. But he didn't need a, a silver cup. Right? He didn't need the divination cup to do this. Instead, he just gave glory to God for revealing the dream to him. Then we saw in chapter 41, as he interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh, he also foretold the future in doing that, and he gave glory to the Lord God. But again, we're not told in Scripture that he needed a silver cup, this silver cup for all of this. So maybe this cup just sat on a mantle someplace in the house of Joseph, and maybe it was given to him by Pharaoh in his position of power. Again, we're really not told, so we really don't know. It just seems kind of strange that Joseph would have any need for this cup because we know that his gift was from God. And we know that God's hand has been upon his life through all of this. But another thing to consider when we wonder if Joseph did use this cup for divination is the fact that it wasn't until the law came along that God would forbid the practice of divination. If you want to read about it, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 18 where God forbade that process, right? But one thing we know for sure today is that God doesn't work through objects, right? He doesn't work through idols, through silver cups and such. God works today in and through the hearts of men and women that are submitted to him. And I think that if this cup were really all that important to Joseph, then I don't think he would just have carelessly used it as a prop like we, like we see him doing here. And that is indeed what this cup was used for here. It was just a prop, right? We will see that this is just a way to get his brothers back into his presence again and to try and see if somehow he could get his whole family in Egypt, including his father. But there's more to this plan than meets the eye right now. So let's read on, verse 7. And they said to him, now this is the brothers speaking to the steward of Joseph. They say, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever your servants is, it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. So the brothers here are immediately pleading their case. Why, they would go th why would they go through all the trouble, they're saying, to return all that was given to them before if they were just going to come back and steal from the, from the Egyptians again, right? How many thieves today work on a return policy? How many thieves bring things back? This is what they're pleading with them. But there's something else that we see here. 
And that is, is that time and time again, these brothers seem to speak in a rash manner. Not really given much thought to what they say or do. All you have to do is go back through some of the chapters we've studied regarding these men, and you'll see certain behavior patterns repeated in them time and time again. But in their defense, in this situation, they had every right to be confident about each other's integrity in this matter. Maybe they really knew that none of them would do such a thing. And that's why they spoke in this matter. But the steward, the servant of Joseph here, answers them. And he says in verse 10, and he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Now, you can take note here of the fact that that's a little bit different. There's a little difference between what the brothers said and what the steward said. The brothers said, let the one who stole it die, and the rest of them would be slaves. And the steward said that the one with whom it was found would be a slave. But you see, we will find that this is all a part of Joseph's plan. It was Benjamin that had the cup. We know this because he was the one on which it was planted, right? Joseph wanted Benjamin to be taken because in his ultimate plan, this was going to lead to the repentance of the brothers. And you'll see what I mean as we go on this morning. Verse 11. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Now, we don't want to too quickly gloss over what just happened here, especially the tearing of the clothes part. You see, the tearing of of one's clothes is an ancient tradition among the Jews, and it is associated with mourning and grieving of a loss or, or just a way of showing great remorse. We saw back when we studied chapter 37 where Reuben, the eldest brother, returned to the pit to get Joseph out of the pit, if you remember, and he found that Joseph was not there. And we are told that when he found that Joseph wasn't in the pit, because he was going to rescue him and get him out of the pit, he tore his clothes. Then when Jacob found out that his son, Joseph, was presumed dead, he too tore his clothes, also in chapter 37. And you'll find several examples of the tearing of the clothes throughout the Old Testament and at least one time in the New Testament. But again, it was just a sign of great remorse. But as we see it taking place here in chapter 44, it is of the utmost importance in the lives of these brothers because it is a sign of the beginning of their repentance. And again, follow along with me because you'll see what I'm talking about when we get there. But keep in mind, things are going to change now. Things are going to completely change for these men. And this is the beginning of it here. They're beginning to feel remorse over over their lives and what they've done in their lives. 
But for you and me and for all men and women for that matter on the face of the earth, we, we too must understand the importance of a repentant heart. Because God in His kindness toward all people is leading people to repentance. It's His desire that people would repent and come to Him. Right? And it's not that a person today needs to tear their clothes, right? But what needs to happen is that within our hearts, there needs to be grief. There needs to be mourning. There needs to be remorse over the fact that we haven't lived a life that is obedient to God. And every person must come to that place in their lives. I want you to mark this page and turn for a moment to the Old Testament book of Joel. You'll find it about three quarters of of the way through the Old Testament. You'll find Daniel, Hosea, and then Joel. Joel chapter 2. Again, about three quarters of the way through the Old Testament. Goes Daniel, Hosea, then Joel. Joel chapter 2. If you hit Amos or Obadiah, you've gone too far. And here in in Joel chapter 2, I just want to point out two verses to you. So let's look down and start reading in verse 12. Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. So you see, today we are to rend our hearts and not our garments. Repentance is an internal thing. And it is, it is what God desires of us. And after it happens internally, it then is seen externally. The old person that we used to be is no longer. This is what happens to a person that comes to Christ and is born again. The old things pass away All things have become new, but it starts with repentance. You see there in verse 12 that there is an outward expression of repentance, fasting and weeping and mourning. There's a great impact, right? A person that is truly repentant has been greatly impacted by what's taking place on the inside of them. True repentance is indeed a matter of the heart, but its effects, the effects of repentance is clearly seen in a person's life because they change and all things become new and they begin to walk in a different way. But it's not about the tearing of the clothes. It's about the tearing of the heart, the submitting of the heart, the remorsefulness in your heart that says, I've not been a follower of God. I've not been obedient to God in the way that I should be. So as we flip back to Genesis chapter 44, I guess the question would be is were these men, these brothers of Joseph, were were they truly repentant? 
Or were they the same old scoundrels that they used to be? Remember, I pointed out to you last week that Joseph seemed to be testing the elder brothers when he gave a much larger portion of food to Benjamin as they sat down to lunch together. Do you remember that? He gave extra portions to Benjamin. And maybe Joseph was wondering if they were going to be envious of their little brother Benjamin as they were envious of him when he was younger. If you remember, that's how they ended up throwing Joseph into the pit in the first place. It all started with their envy. And now, here in chapter 44, they will be tested again to see what kind of men they really are. Are they repentant? Did the tearing of their clothes here really mean anything deep down in their hearts? Will they change? Verse 14, so Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. So it says that Joseph was still there in the house. And that kind of jumps out to me for some reason as I studied this. As an important thing. Because he was just waiting for them to return to him. And I can't help but to equate this to how our Lord God is just waiting patiently for people to come to him to rend their hearts, to repent, and to turn their lives to Him. Many people wonder if the Lord is truly going to return and come back to the earth again as He said He would. And if so, then why is the Lord taking so long to do that? But the answer we know is found in the pages of Scripture in 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the Lord is just patiently waiting that people would turn and come to repentance. That's why he's long-suffering. That's why he's, you know, holding back on his return right now. He sits in his house waiting for many people to repent as will repent. And here Joseph is sitting and just waiting for their return. Okay, And now the brothers are back in front of Joseph once again. And verse 15 says, And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? So Joseph is keeping up the facade here, right? He's still not revealing himself to them. And in his act to them here. He's saying, come on, don't you know that I have the power to know these kind of things? I know when something's missing. I know what's going on. Do you really think that you would get away with this kind of thievery? Don't you know that I can see what others cannot see? Is what Joseph is pointing out here. But in reality, this is all just a setup. All of this is just a setup. It's something that's part of a grander plan. But this is where the story, to me, takes a powerful turn. Verse 16. Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, 
my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. Now to me, there's so much power in what's happening here. Because the truth is, they didn't steal the cup. They didn't do what they're being accused of here. Joseph knows it. He knows this whole thing is a setup. He's probably surprised to hear Judah's confession. Why isn't Judah screaming out his innocence? Why is he not pleading for Joseph to just find out the truth about this silver cup? They didn't steal it. But you know what? Judah knows in his heart that they are not innocent men. And he says there that God has found out their iniquity. He knows that God has seen their past sin. The sin of selling Joseph into slavery. Judah has finally reached the end of himself. The jig is up, as they say. It's it's time to be a real man of God. It's time to repent of their past sin. Time to show remorse and to finally surrender themselves to God. They've been living with this sin for far too long now. Jesus said in Luke 8, 17, that nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor is anything hidden that will not be made known and come to light. Hebrews 4.13 says, All things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. And Judah's heart has finally come to the right place. This is not the same Judah that sold Joseph in chapter 37, the, the Judah we're seeing right now. Okay, This is not the same Judah that lived in immorality in chapter 38. This is a repentant Judah. And Joseph responds to him here in verse 17. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now, pause right there again for a moment because it's kind of interesting that Joseph tells Judah to go up in peace to your father. In other words, go back home, Judah. No worries. Go back to your normal life, Judah. I'm going to keep Benjamin here as a slave. Because you see, that's exactly what Judah did after he sold Joseph into slavery. He could care less back then. He went on living the way he wanted to live for 24 years. He knew Joseph was really not torn apart by an animal as they had fabricated the story to their father. In the last 24 years or so, he hasn't stopped to think that, well, maybe Joseph is still alive and maybe I should go try and find him. Maybe I should rescue him. Right? But none of this crossed Judah's selfish mind in all of this time. And Joseph says to him, don't worry about it, bro. Just go live. Go go do what you always do. Go live in peace. Go back to your life. Do what you once did before. Because Joseph knew, obviously. But again, this is not the same Judah. Verse 18, Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's 
hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. So Judah understands here Joseph's position of authority, and he reverences this position. Judah says in verse 19, My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he, is, he alone is left of his mother's children. And his father loves him. So Judah here reiterates a, a little bit of the family structure to Joseph. He's trying to point out to Joseph that Benjamin is of great importance to his father. He is the only child left from his mother, Rachel. Or at least Judah thinks that is the case anyway, because of course Joseph is Benjamin's full brother. Joseph was a child of Rachel. And Benjamin is especially special to Jacob, their father, because Rachel, the woman that Jacob loved, do you remember that? The woman Jacob loved time and time again. We talked about how Jacob loved Rachel. Well, the woman that Jacob loved, Rachel, gave up her life giving birth to Benjamin. Rachel was of great worth to Jacob. You, you, again, you can remember the story we studied about their love. Jacob worked long and hard because he loved Rachel. And you know, in the book of Ruth chapter 4 and verse 11. It speaks of both Rachel and Leah. And it calls them the two who built the house of Israel. That's what Ruth 4.11 says. These two mothers, these two moms were credited with building the house of Israel. So, since today is Mother's Day, Let me take this opportunity to exhort you all in regards to the blessing, the importance of mothers. You see, we all know if we have any maturity about us at all that mothers lay down so much, they sacrifice so much, they give so much for the sake of their children. And when you have someone in your life that cares for your well-being, A mother that does all that she can to make a home. A mother that sees to it that you eat and that you drink and that it's well with you when you are sick. And she longs in her heart that all the days of your life on this earth would be good days. How can we live without honoring this type of person? She didn't cast you aside. She didn't give you up. She didn't abort you, right? Instead, she kept you with her. And she took care of your every need. And you know, our mothers will not be with us always. So I exhort you to redeem the time. Right? Make the most of it. Honor your mother. Not just one day, but many days a year. Don't push her out of your life. Hold her near and dear in your heart. Eve was called the mother of all living. Rachel and Leah, again, I quoted to you from Ruth chapter 4, verse 11. They're credited with building all the house of Israel. Your mother, the one that has stayed by your side and has given all to care for you, right? 
She's important, to say the least. She deserves honor. She deserves credit. She deserves you to speak that credit to her, to speak it to her, to tell her. And that's my exhortation to those that have mothers still on the earth. And to the moms, I would say, it's a good fight. Don't give up. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Your role on this earth is a tremendous blessing. You, you may not feel that what you sow is what you reap, right? That all that you invest gives you very much return at all. But just know that God has created you to be very, very special here on this earth. Again, two great examples, Eve, the mother of all living, and three great examples, really, Rachel and Leah credited with building the whole house of Israel, going down in the pages of Scripture for their importance, right? Because the seeds that you sow will one day cause love to grow. The seeds that you sow will one day come to fruition as a mother. So God bless all you mothers, and happy Mother's Day. And as we get back to our story here, Judah now understands the importance of family, doesn't he? He realized that love matters, and love matters more than his own selfishness. He realizes that his father loves Benjamin so much. This is the only son left of his mother, Rachel. So he thinks as he tells this story to Joseph. But he's pleading with Joseph on behalf of his family. And he's telling Joseph of just how important Benjamin is to his father. And in verse 21, Judah continues to rehash the story with Joseph. And he says, Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. So do you see this change? in the life of Judah here. Again, in times past, he was a man that could could care less about his father grieving the loss of his son. He just went on to live his life the way he wanted to after that. I think if you remember back when we read that story, after they had sold Joseph into slavery, they just went and sat down and had a meal. It was like no big deal to them. That was the man that Joseph was. But we're now seeing God working in his heart. God is touching him in such a way that he finally sees his own iniquity. In chapter 43, he told his father, Jacob, that he would stand in Benjamin's place if it came down to it. That he would take care of Benjamin no matter what. And in chapter 44, he's doing exactly what he said he would do. He's now stepping up to the plate. And he continues to plead with Joseph here in verse 23. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, Then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. 
Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me and I said, surely he is torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Okay, stop right there and put yourself now in Joseph's shoes or his sandals, whatever he wore, right? Because he's just hearing something for the first time right now. Joseph is right now hearing something he didn't know. He didn't know that after he was sold into slavery that his brothers told his father that he was torn into pieces by some animal. So Joseph is kind of getting filled in on some details pertaining to his own life here that he didn't know. Judah continues in verse 30 and says, Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life. Now pause again for a moment here, because do you see what Judah is saying there? By saying that his father's life is bound up in the lad's life, he is saying that for his father, it's all about Benjamin. Again, as far as Jacob knows this is the last remaining child. Benjamin is the last remaining child of the woman that he loved. Benjamin's mother died, like I said, after giving birth. And to Jacob's knowledge, Rachel's only other child, Joseph, was dead. So Jacob was committed to Benjamin in the memory of his mother. He would die without Benjamin. His life would be meaningless. So not only do we see the importance of a mother, but we also see today the devotion of a father. It is important to our Lord God that we honor both our father and our mother. And Judah is being sure at this point in time right here of his life to do this, to do that. He's concerned for his father. And in verse 31, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers." For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? So Judah couldn't bear it, couldn't bear to think of that happening because he's a repentant man now. He's a, a changed heart and he's, he's standing up and he's realizing that he has sinned in his life and that God knows he has sinned. Remember, the stealing of the silver cup was not the issue here, for they were all innocent of that. But Judah is standing up on behalf of all his brethren, putting the blame on himself for the sin they committed. He's repentant. He now finally understands the things that are important and the things that are not. He once was self-centered and immoral couldn't care less. 
how he got what he wanted just as long as he got what he wanted, right? But he now understands the importance of family, the, the sanctity of life, the importance of standing up for what is right, the importance of doing what is good. He is a changed man. And there's always hope for a person, for a person, right? Nothing is impossible with God. He can reach the heart of every man and of every woman. Many mothers have poured love and prayers over children that they hope would not be lost. Judah is a great example to us in the pages of Scripture of someone that once was a knucklehead child that came to repentance. We see here a portrait of repentance, a portrait of no one is too far gone. No one is beyond the Lord God's reach. So, if you've not come to repentance before God, then you're hearing this message for a reason, because the Lord is sitting and waiting for you to return to Him, waiting for you to rend your heart, waiting for you to show remorse for your sin and to fall on your face before Him. And if you are caring for someone else, praying for someone else, hoping that it will be well with them, don't give up hope because this story is a, a great story in the Word of God that shows, like I said, that no one is beyond the reach of the Lord. Keep fighting the fight of faith. And I put that out to the moms out there that have that heart for their children that maybe are wayward, right? Keep praying, keep holding on to hope because the cause is worth fighting for. If motherhood seems to be a war for some of you, then it is a war for the well-being of another soul, and it's a war worth fighting. And again, I'll close by saying for those of you that still have a mother on this planet. Honor her, not just today, but honor her every day and in every way. It's just a great honor and privilege to have a mom on this earth that cares for you. But we see some, we've seen some different things here today. We've seen a repentant man in Judah, someone that you know, again, you might have to go back and maybe read chapter 38 and see the direction that Judah took in his life. You can read chapter 37 again and see what he did, of course, to Joseph. But next week, we're going to see where Joseph is going to reveal himself. It's kind of good just to read right now on into chapter 5. But I'm going to go ahead and pause here for today and we'll pick up chapter 5 next week. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, again we thank you for your love. God, thank you that you are long-suffering, that you are merciful, that you look upon the people of this earth with great mercy and great love. You love this world so much that you gave your only begotten Son for this world, that we would have the opportunity to repent and to come back to you, to come into a relationship with our Creator, our Father God. 
And I pray, Lord, for each and every one of our hearts and for those that may be listening via recording right now, Lord, that this would be a day of repentance, a day where they would just get on their face, on their knees before you and confess their sin and confess their need for a Savior. We see in the life of Judah a man that finally came to repentance, a man that finally came to understood that God sees his iniquity and he can't keep running and he can't keep hiding. I pray, Lord, for those that are listening, for all of us here, that we would be a repentant people, that we would draw nearer and nearer to you, that we would humble ourselves in your sight, that your will would be done in our lives, Lord. God, we thank you again for your word, for this time together, for this special day. In Jesus' name, amen.